You actually go outside in these things? Well, what would you prefer, yellow spandex? This is the 13 Days of X-Men. Welcome to the 13 Days of X-Men, Monkey Off My Backlog's second annual holiday limited series. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is the mystique to my magneto, Tessa. Hello! Last year, because movie marathons are a holiday tradition for us, we watched nine Fast and Furious movies and released nine podcast episodes over nine days. This time, we're raising the stakes by watching the 13 movies in the Fox X-Men series. We're beginning today with the film that started it all, 2000's X-Men. Now last year, it seemed like a good idea to watch a movie each day and record the podcast for that movie before we watch the next one. How do you think that went, Tessa? I mean, I think it was both really great and really exhausting. On the one hand, it was really nice to just like wake up in the morning because it was on break. We were both done with the semester and watch a Fast and Furious movie with breakfast, have a little coffee and then record it and then do it all again the next day. But on the other hand, it was a lot of producing work to do in such a short time period. So I think we were both kind of exhausted by the end of it. So this year, we decided to record the X-Men series weekly. For you, it's December 13th. For us, it's October 2nd. After today, we're going to commit to the bit. But since it isn't actually the holiday season yet, this year we'll be asking our guests about what they're looking forward to this holiday season. We hope that everyone's holiday hopes are realized this year. But since we don't have a guest for this first episode, Tessa, this question is for you. What are you looking forward to this holiday season? All of the guests we're going to have on. No, I'm just, I I mean, I am looking forward to that. But actually, I am also, I I am very excited about the guests, you guys. We have a really great lineup coming up. You've heard most of those voices before. You're going to hear them again. It's going to be great. But as far as pop culture things that I'm looking forward to this holiday season, you know, I'm really feeling the Hawkeye miniseries from Disney+. Plus. Hawkeye is not my favorite of the Avengers. I really wasn't that interested until they put out the trailer here over the last couple of weeks. But the fact that it's going to be basically a Christmas series, kind of like Dash and Lily, I'm like 50% more excited about it than I was. I mean, I was going to watch it anyway because Haley Steinfeld, but, you know, also Christmas. Do you want to mention a certain other project that's occurring? Right before Christmas? Right. So even though we're taking it easy on ourselves this year by spreading out our recordings of the 13 Days of X-Men, we still have to do like a ridiculously long movie marathon. It's just that's what we do. So I believe Christmas Eve, we are going to watch all three of the extended Lord of the Rings cuts. I have done this in one sitting before. Sam has technically done it in one sitting before, but Sam, do you want to explain why that sitting didn't count? I do not, but I do want to say that this year, it'll be a very Ian McKellen Christmas. Oh, nice. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. However, even though we are changing up our holiday format a little bit, we are keeping some of the things that we did last year. Unfortunately, this year we are retiring the podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail, but of course we couldn't let it go by without one final podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Tell us what you have today, Sam. Well, as I said, we are at the beginning of October and we are going to commit to the bit from the next episode on. But since we have broken the fourth wall in this episode, I do want to say that I am not having a holiday cocktail, but I am having an Oktoberfest James Marzen. I love how we're just basically going, we'll commit to the bit tomorrow. Like, we're going to commit to the bit tomorrow, you guys. Tomorrow, tomorrow we will commit to the holiday bit. I, I think that's funny. This has been... 
the podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. I mean, if I hadn't realized that Marzen and Marsden were like almost the same word, probably would have committed to it sooner. But some jokes are too good to let go to waste. And speaking of jokes, before we really get into talking about this film, it's important to note that this is Brian Singer's first superhero film. He'll direct three more in this series, as well as the 2006 film Superman Returns. So... It's going to be pretty difficult to talk about this series without mentioning his name here and there. It'd kind of like be trying to talk about Buffy or the Avengers without that other guy. Tessa, take it away. I mean, I think that it's important to address the elephant in the room that is Brian Singer. Brian Singer obviously is not a good person. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like the best way to say this. I did not prepare this segment at all. But he, he's not a good person. He has done some very bad things. You know, he has been part of the, he has been revealed as a bad person by the Rising Me Too movement, although his sins have been known in Hollywood for a long time. And unfortunately, even Fox enabled him. We have Kevin Feige, we found out recently because Fox sent him to babysit Brian Singer during this film because he was acting inappropriately towards members of the cast and he was on drugs. So, I mean, unfortunately, it's impossible to detangle Brian Singer's legacy from these movies. He is the one who finally, as we're going to talk about, brought X-Men to the screen, or at least the big screen, the live action screen in this way. And we're going to have to talk about him as a director. I have very mixed feelings about Brian Singer, not as a person. I have very clear feelings of him as a person. I've Mixed feelings about him as a director. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but we did want to get out of the way that we are very aware of Brian Singer's sins. We will probably talk about them a little bit, but we just wanted to put that out there. And of course, Singer isn't the only difficult person affiliated with this franchise. And of course, we'll talk about the fact that the people who brought this franchise to you no longer exist. So there are lots of things that are problematic about this series, and we'll, we'll talk about them as they come up. Now, the film itself, though. This first X-Men movie begins with two themes that X-Men fans are very familiar with. Eric as a Holocaust survivor and the Mutant Registration Act. Isn't it kind of a bold move for Singer and company to begin with these two things? Yeah, so the Mutant Registration Act is very like, we have to know who all the mutants are, and we have to know what they're able to do. This is very similar, that stuff like this is very common in the comics, like the idea of being the government registering mutants or keeping track of them, and of course there's a whole timeline where they imprison them in concentration-like camps. Magneto, of course, sees this as a threat. He, of course, ties this to the concentration camp that he was in as a child. He, we see, you know, images of his tattoo with the numbers on them. And, of course, for comic book fans, this will evoke the Superhero Registration Act, which is the inciting point for the Civil War storyline between Captain America and Iron Man in those particular comics. So, and of course the X-Men are on the side of Captain America for the most part because they understand that registering people in this way is probably not a good idea. I am actually drawing a blank on this, but the other thing that's interesting about the way that mutants are explained in this film is that there's a couple of different theories of evolution and this one definitely subscribes to the idea that every so often evolution leaps ahead. So like there's people who say, well, evolution's like a very slow process. And then other people say it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. And then suddenly it happens. This one definitely sets it up as a like inciting incident is just evolution. Just suddenly these people exist, which is interesting. But other than that, we don't really get that much of an origin story, which I actually kind of appreciate. I think it's really bold to begin any superhero movie in a concentration camp. I mean, we'll see scenes We'll actually see this very scene from the beginning of the movie replicated in first class, which I think is really interesting how they kind of go deeper into this scene. But to start from Eric's perspective, right, 
to see him as a child and how this moment of trauma of being separated from his parents in the concentration camp actually kickstarted his powers. That's going to be a theme throughout the entire franchise. And actually, it's a theme in the comics as well. This idea that powers usually emerge during adolescence and they usually emerge during a stressful moment. And of course, what could be more stressful than the Holocaust? And because time is a flat circle, of course, we'll eventually get back to this storyline. But once we get past that particular story frame, we get something that is much more familiar and expected. The origin story. For this, we travel to the Deep South to join Sookie Stackhouse's origin story already in progress. Wrong. What? But it's Anna Paquin. And she's doing a Southern accent, right? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And and by the way, I mean, like, Anna Paquin has, like, the most hyperbolic southern accent since Foghorn Leghorn, so you'll have to excuse me. Anyway, we travel to the Deep South to join Rogue's origin story already in progress. This This characterization of Rogue is just perfect, right, Tessa? You love it. I know you're on record many, many times as saying this is great. You're getting the joke. But no, seriously, actually, I hate this version of Rogue. And I love Anna Paquin. The funny thing about Anna Paquin, actually, this is going to be a running theme in this 13 Days of X-Men, is me liking the cast but hating the performance or hating the, the way that the character is written. Anna Paquin could play this character. That's what's so frustrating about this. Rogue in the comics is closer to Sookie Stackhouse than she is. (laughs) Sookie. I'm terrible. I have a terrible Bill impression. She is closer to Sookie Stackhouse than she is to this version of the character. And part of that is because Brian Singer, when he did his once over of the script after, you know, everyone in Hollywood had done their once over of the script. We'll talk about that later. He combined like he was trying to condense characters down in this film and he was trying to include too many I think of the characters in one in one film and so what he did was he combined the character of Kitty Pride and Jubilee into this representation of Rogue and it comes across like Kitty Pride is a very different character than Rogue in the comics and it comes across as way more mild-mannered than Rogue is. Rogue is like a very sassy, very fiery, like couldn't give two bleeps type of character. I mean, she's been handed this raw deal, right? Like she, I mean, I would, I would think that Rogue, Rogue is definitely like top five, what like top five people with the worst superpowers, right? Like she can't touch anybody because she drains their life force. If it's a mutant, she drains their powers. She drains memories, which is something that comes up later in this film and in the comics. But in the, in the comics, she has a very like, she's developed this very like hard shell to sort of mask a lot of the pain. And the shell is, but the shell is also like very fun. Like she's a very fun character in a lot of the comics as well. She has this like flirtation with Gambit, which, oh my God. But like this version is very sad. Like she's very sad sack rogue. And it just doesn't feel right, especially knowing that Anna Paquin can actually play a character that is closer to her version in the comics. And of course, speaking of sad, we can all pour one out for poor Taylor Kitsch. For reasons unexplained, Rogue seeks out Wolverine in Canada. So we go from a teenager's first makeout experience gone horribly wrong to a man walks into a bar and beats everybody up. Now, joining this one already in progress makes much more sense because he's an amnesiac. Tessa, I know that you enjoy Sabretooth's yearly battle with Wolverine in the comics, and this is... Kind of that? No. And actually, I don't really enjoy this version of Sabretooth. He looks like he does in the comics. Like, he has the hair and the nails, and he's kind of gross and feral, which, I mean, this is closer than definitely the Leave Schreiber version, which is, like, way hotter and way cooler than Sabretooth has any right to be. We'll talk about that when we get to Wolverine Origins. But... He just kind of, I mean, he's like Sabretooth in the comics. Sabretooth in the comics is just not 
like a star character. He's there to make things happen. He attacks Wolverine once a year. Like, there's not a lot to say about him. After doing Tessa Watches Lost, which I I hope you've all heard before, kind of wanted to replicate that format here. So you may have noticed that I'm asking a lot of the questions, which means I sound like I know a whole lot more than I do about this series. And you'll see that in the next question. Sabretooth is, of course, part of Magneto's Brotherhood of Mutants, which I totally knew already. (laughs) Now, the OG lineup of the Brotherhood of Mutants is Magneto, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, Toad, and Mastermind. In this movie, we get Toad. But we also get Sabretooth and Mix... Mix Mixaplix. And why is that easier to say than Mystique? I don't know. And Sabretooth and Mystique. What do you think? I really enjoyed the fact that this movie, even though it kind of funks... It kind of funks? Yeah, we're doing great today. Okay, so this movie... I really enjoy the fact that it doesn't completely function as a start-from-zero origin story. The X-Men already exist, right? The Brotherhood already exists. Magneto and Professor X already know each other, and I really appreciated that. But this is straight out of the comics, right? Like, even if this isn't the original lineup, the Brotherhood is like the X-Men. It is a rotating roster. Magneto is always at the head. Well, I guess I shouldn't say always. There's going to be somebody who calls in and is like, oh, but in issue 24, actually. So I shouldn't we say don't that. have Colin. I don't, think you, I don't think you understand X-Men fans. And, like, like our, somebody's phone is going to start ringing any second because they sensed that I got something wrong. Okay, but listen, if people actually start tweeting at us because of this, you can take the hit. You're used to it. You're a girl and you like comic books. At least that's what Andy would say if he was here. Please don't bring Andy into this. Andy will be one of our guests, by the way. I love Ian McKellen as Magneto, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Sabretooth is just kind of like, yeah, he's Sabretooth. This is what the character is in the comics. Toad is such a weird character. And I I know he's in the comics. He's in uh, some of the X-Men animated shows. In some of the X-Men animated shows. But, like, his mutant power is that he's Toad-like. He sticks to things and his tongue is really long. Like, that's, that's it, which is kind of ridiculous. The one saving grace, the one perhaps saving grace of this version of Toad is that he's played by Ray Park, who many people will know or maybe will not know. As Darth Maul from The Phantom Menace, Ray Park has been around for a long time and done a lot of stunt work, and so he really tries to bring Toad to life. But there's just not a lot to do with Toad. Again, he sticks to walls. He has a long tongue. Rebecca Romaine as Mystique. I love Mystique, but I, I'm i afraid that, especially after reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff with Mystique, she's not given a lot to do. Mystique is sort of off-again, on-again part of the Brotherhood in the comics, but she's a villain in her own right. A lot of times she is the mastermind behind stuff on the X-Men. And while I like her teaming up with Magneto in this particular version, I think the fact that technology had not yet caught up to what Brian Singer wanted to do in this movie really worked against her character because he specifically wanted her to be an opaque blue skinned mutant like she is in the comic books and unfortunately at this point those prosthetics took like six to seven hours to put on every single day she says that she didn't even interact with the rest of the cast and she it felt like she was making a completely different movie than the rest of them and I think that really hurts her character I don't think she has enough to do in this although I do enjoy I like that they went all in on her just like not wearing clothes because that's like part of Some of the comics like really lean into that. And I enjoyed that, even though with Brian Singer, it feels a little gross sometimes. But she, I think what she is allowed to do, she plays very well. I just wish she had had more dialogue. I wish she had more motivation than just sort of being there next to Magneto. Meanwhile, at Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, which I am 100% sure is not what they called it in the movie. The OG crew from the comics is Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman. Now, we do get Cyclops and Marvel Girl, who is Jean Grey, 
And Bobby Drake is a student. But of course, we have in this film, we do not have Beast and Angel and Iceman's current incarnation, or I guess Marvel Girls either, technically. We do have Wolverine, who came along later, along with Storm, who is a Chris Claremont edition. Again, I totally knew that before we recorded this podcast. It's this roster, should they have gone with the, with the OG pre-Claremont roster? Is this a good roster? What do you think? Okay, first of all, nobody should go with the pre-Chris Claremont roster. Nobody should go with that. Before Chris Claremont got involved with X-Men, it was kind of a mess. Like, those characters are the OG, but they didn't really know how to do what they were doing. And when Chris Claremont came in, he did like a soft reboot of the X-Men. He kept Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, although she quickly shed that name and became Phoenix. And he brought in Nightcrawler as, and Wolverine, as well as a lot of other beloved characters that really, that really made the team more compelling. Another interesting fact about this film is that the original script actually also had Nightcrawler, Beast, and the Danger Room, which is a, a big part of the X-Men. So I don't think we've talked about this on, on the podcast before. And, you know, we've already alluded to, to fandom and comic book fandom as not always the happiest place on earth. But what I remember from when we were getting to know each other is that this was maybe your first or m- first most significant fandom. So I know, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this is because this series means a lot to you. I think it's neat, but, but you're a lot more invested in these characters. You know, not, not in a, you've memorized every single uh, frame of every issue, but, but you have a lot invested in this. So, you know, that's, that's why we're talking about it in this way. So you've got to have some more thoughts about these characters. I'm sure of it. I'm just sure of it. Oh, yeah, I have so many thoughts about these characters, and we can talk about my relationship with this series later, but I, 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 again, really like the casting of this movie. Like, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine, even though he's really too tall to play Wolverine, who's called Shorty in the comics. He's really good in this role. Obviously, he's made this role iconic. Fomka Jansen is also really a wonderful actress. James Marsden makes sense as Cyclops. I love Patrick Stewart. You know, he will always be Captain Picard to me, but he works in this role and not just because he's bald. And, you know, Ian McKellen is also great. I just, some of the ways that these characters are written, like Rogue, are just really collapsed. And I don't actually know if it entirely works with the ages of the characters. Like, I was thinking about this a lot as we were rewatching this. So the original X-Men series and the Chris Claremont reboot both have the X-Men as sort of older teenagers, maybe early 20s at the very oldest. Like they're all still in school. They're also kind of going to these classes, but they're also doing superhero stuff, which introduces a lot of really kind of icky paternalistic things on the part of Professor X, right? Like he's sort of the school teacher, but he's also kind of dad, but he's also kind of like assimilationist and trying to make them like into these superheroes that can prove mutants belong. Uh, we could get into that as well. I, I don't know what age some of these characters are playing. Like as I was watching this, I was like, well, Wolverine's obviously older. Like he's like a full grown adult. And Rogue is obviously like a teenager. Like she, Anna Paquin was very young when she filmed this. She's clearly like a younger teenager and she's going to classes when they get to the, the university. And so is Bobby. But, like, how old is Jean Grey and Scott? They feel like maybe they're, they're in their younger 20s because she is presenting to, like, a special com- like congressional committee at the beginning of this. And she has, like, a doctorate, even though she's, like, really young to have a doctorate, right? She's, like, a special gifted child. But, like, she's playing this character like she's still kind of a demure, like, teenager. And, and Professor X says... Jean and Scott were my first students, which, you know, makes sense from the comics. You know, I just, it's really hard for me because they seem to be playing with this liminal space where they're kind of like adolescents, but they're not adolescents. Like they're at this school, but they don't seem to have adult things going on in their lives. In fact, we don't really get a lot of the interior lives of any of these characters, except for maybe 
Magneto and Rogue, weirdly enough. This really feels to me like proof of concept. Hey, we can make a movie that looks like a comic book, right? Like that these characters actually look like they do on the pages. But I don't know if the characters themselves actually live up to the comics, at least not yet, not in this movie. Other than getting Logan on board with the team, the plot of this film centers on an annoying anti-mutant senator. <laughs> I don't I mean like there're just some things that about this movie that you cannot possibly imagine would exist in real life. And I think a ridiculously annoying hypocritical senator is just one of those things. I mean like No, I would ex- I adamantium skeleton is a more realistic outcome really but anyway this this guy is captured by magneto and turned into a mutant by the power of magnets i guess but magneto's plan to turn everyone into mutants won't work because as professor x discovers no regular human can survive the process so magneto's evil plan must be thwarted is that a good movie? I love how they never actually tell us how the machine works. Magnets! Like, like they literally, I mean, usually they don't. Usually in like a science fiction film, they just say some kind of like gibberish and it kind of makes sense in like a weird magnet. way. But yeah, they don't even try it. They're just like, yeah, Magneto's the only one who can power it. It works. Trust us. But yeah, I, I don't know. I really like, I think that John Kelly's stuff, Senator John Kelly, who is a big fixture in the comics. He, he kind of reads like a Lindsey Graham or a Mitch McConnell. That's kind of who he is. I think that's really interesting. Although, like you said, they kill him off in a really weird way. Like he almost feels plot devicey. He doesn't actually feel like, I don't know. It's hard to feel sorry for him. I think the film wants us to feel sorry for him. Did you get that vibe? Why would we be sorry for I, him? I didn't. Ro- or Storm was like all traumatized by his death, but I was like, good riddance. Anyway. I I don't know. I just don't. This just seems like such a. I you know that I like low stakes superhero movies. You know I like that. I like superhero movies that don't do sky beams. And this movie was not trying to do a sky beam, which I appreciate. But it didn't feel like, despite Ian McKellen's really great performance in this, which kudos to him. He does a wonderful job. What? Like that that was kind of my my impression, which is hilarious because I think the first time I watched this movie, I just kind of accepted it. Like, yeah, this is a comic book plot, duh. But like since we've had other comic book movies now, this is not a plot. It is literally just a thing that happens. In some ways, I'm surprised this film succeeded at all. At times it felt like a standalone film and then at other times it felt like it was trying to set up an entire franchise. Now, I also got the sense that either this film is really, really criminally underwritten, or it's relying a lot on the audience's pre-existing knowledge of the X-Men, which is great if you're Tessa and not for me. Is this film a good starting point, or was this franchise always doomed to fail? So I'm going to say this a lot over the next 13 episodes, but I actually think X-Men works better as a TV series than it does as a film franchise. I think this movie suffers, like you said, from you kind of need some previous knowledge of these characters to completely understand what's going on. I also think that there's a good part of this movie that's literally just saying, hey, look what we can do. We can recreate these characters that you love from the comics. We can make we can make Storm look like Storm. We can make her hit Toad with lightning. Isn't that cool? And I think that the reason it went over so well in 2000 is because we hadn't really had a superhero movie like this for a while. We had Blade back in 1998, which single-handedly saved Marvel, but Blade is a very different type. It's a different vibe than X-Men. And Sam Raimi's Spider-Man wouldn't come along into 2002. So this kind of was for comic book pa- This kind of was for comic book fans the only thing that they had of these characters for a while. Like Marvel had not been doing well in the 90s. So I think that a lot of it has to do with nostalgia, right? Like, oh, we read those X-Men comics when we were kids. But I'm not sure this film really stands up to the test of time. So you've already talked a little bit about 
these characters and how the actors approach them. But let's maybe let's do a a rundown and because I know you're invested in this franchise, at least the comic book format, so by default in the film franchise. So let's start with old Picard himself as Professor Xavier I does he have a last name? Charles Xavier. Xavier is his Oh, uh, okay. All right. See, I am a total expert on all <laughs> things X person. Haha, you said expert. Sure. You know, it's funny because Professor X is my least favorite part of pretty much any X-Men scenario because he is very paternalistic he's very assimilationist like we've talked about before like he just wants mutants to be good enough like he thinks if mutants are good enough that humans will just accept them and that's you know not a great stance not that magnetos is better but it's perhaps a little bit more realistic However, Patrick Stewart is a charming charming person he will always be Captain Picard and so like even though this character still has a lot of paternalism in it, especially in this movie, Patrick Stewart can kind of get away with it, you know, because he's got like that, like kind of dad charm that you kind of need for this character. He softens the edges. And so it's not until much later in this series, the film series, that you sort of realize, yeah, this guy's as manipulative as all get out. Speaking of big dad vibes, we also have Ian McKellen as Magneto. Is he truly Neato in this role? I love Ian McKellen in this role so much. So one of the things that really drew him to this role was the metaphor of the X-Men, which the X-Men can really be a metaphor for anything, right? Like in the 60s, 50s and 60s, it was really a metaphor for civil rights. Later on in the 80s and 90s, it became more of a metaphor for LGBTQ plus stuff. That's kind of the way that Ian McKellen is playing this. Uh, he's playing Magneto definitely in a more queer way that I think we see later. He's over the top, and yet he's still grounded in this backstory, this very quick backstory we've been given about him being in a concentration camp. He has a very... Magneto is really one of the first villains in the film versions of the comics where he's a character that's not wrong. Like, he's wrong about his response, but he's not wrong about the fact that humans are generally really terrible people and they don't like things that are different. And when they are afraid of things, they lash out in very predictable ways. His response, of course, to this is, well, we're, we have to do eugenics first, right? They're going to eugenics us, and so we have to do eugenics first. And that's obviously very, very problematic, but I do love the interactions between him and Professor X in this film. I think, obviously, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are very good friends in real life. I actually don't know if their friendship predates this series. That might be something I, I bring up next episode. I'll have to do some research on that. But that friendship, I think, translates really well into what is a friendship in the comics, right? Like, these are two characters who love each other very much sometimes in a quasi-queer sort of way, and they just heartbreakingly disagree ideologically about what should happen. It's hard to say that Magneto is the one that's wrong, though, all the time. Okay, and of course we have Australian actor, singer, multi-instrumentalist, dancer, and producer who does exactly one of those things in this franchise, Huge Ackman. That's right, Ryan Reynolds' nemesis plays Wolverine in this franchise. So I find it fascinating that Hugh Jackman was actually cast three weeks into filming this role, since this is the role that really catapulted him to the international stardom that he enjoys today, the action stardom. He's perfect in this role. Like I, I have nothing to say because I honestly can't imagine a lot of other actors playing this role at this point. I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure at some point we'll get a recast of this character and hopefully it'll be as good as he is because he's just kind of that grouchy, growly, you know, sideburns person. The way that they did his hairstyle in this film is, of course, like more aping the comics than 
we're going to see later, like it's out of control, the swoops of his hair in this. And of course, like I said earlier, they're still trying to pretend that he's short. I don't think he says bub enough in this movie. That's like my one complaint. He doesn't say bub, which is Wolverine's catchphrase in this movie. But overall, I think he does a fantastic job. There's a lot of, even though we don't get a lot of his interiority in this film, we get more of it than I think we get of some of the other characters. And he plays this person who is in a lot of pain because he doesn't know, really know who he is or what happened to him or why he is this way than the other characters. I also find it hilarious in this film that they really just address head on the fact that Wolverine is probably one of the most powerful mutants in existence. I mean, he can heal from practically anything, including later, as we'll find out, a headshot wound. And his bones are adamantium. He has these claws. But he is particularly susceptible to Magneto's power because of the adamantium bones. And there's this wonderful scene that will always play in my head between those two characters it, when they're in the train and Magneto like picks him up and is basically like, does that delightful metal run through your whole body? Okay. Rounding out the leading men of this film is the personification of the sad trombone noise, James Marsden as Cyclops. I mean... He's fine. I mean, I don't know what you want me to say. Scott's a Boy Scout in the comics, and he's a Boy Scout here. Like, he's not a character that's supposed to have a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, they develop a little bit the clash between him and Logan over leadership styles, but it doesn't really play well here because Logan isn't really part of the team yet, right? Like, he's this is his induction into the team in this particular universe. And so it makes the conflict more about Jean Grey than it does about. The X-Men, which I think is a little problematic in this film, but I, I just don't have a lot to say about Scott at all in this franchise, to be honest with you. Okay, let's see which one of these actors is the Girl Scout of the film. Let's start off with Halle Berry as Storm. Halle Berry is much better in this role than she was as Catwoman, and she's much better in this role than she was as Jinx. And I like Halle Berry a lot, but this is a role that she does particularly well in. Again, we don't get a lot of interiority in this film, so it's hard to say that like we really learn a lot about the character besides the fact that she's a badass and... She plays Storm really young. Like, she seems kind of wide-eyed and naive, a lot more so than she does in subsequent films. But I, you know, for the time, the special effects around this character were amazing. I love the way her eyes go white when she is controlling the weather. You know, she has these great moments where she, you know, calls down lightning, which is awesome. She flies in this film. So she has, like, perhaps some of the coolest powers demonstrations, at least as far as special effects. All right, moving from one Bond girl to another, we have Xenia Onatop, also known as Famke Jansen, also known as Jean Grey, also known as Marvel Girl, also known as Phoenix, but just Jean Grey in this movie. Yeah, so you know how you said at one point that this movie is odd because it feels like a standalone movie at times, and then other times it feels like they were setting up the franchise. I feel like that is really apparent in this character because, yeah, she seems very Girl Scout-ish in this film to Scott's Boy Scout. She's like this really educated doctor. She's very smart. She, you know, is the one who's performing medical procedures on both Logan and Professor X at one point. She's part of this first class that that Professor X says that he has in this school. She plays a lot more like the original 50s Marvel girl than she does like the Jean Grey character that most people have come to know. She's not very powerful in this movie. I don't know if you noticed that. She doesn't it takes a lot of effort for her to d perform telekinesis. It takes a lot of effort for her to read Logan's mind. At one point, she tries to uncover his memories, and she's having a difficult time with it. She seems more like the—she seems like a liability on the team, to be honest. Even on the climactic battle on in the Statue of Liberty, right? Like she she says that she'll try to lift Wolverine up to where Rogue is in the in the machine, and it, it's just. 
It feels like a lot of effort on her part, and especially considering the fact that she is a Omega level mutant, it just it seems like she's still at the beginning of developing her powers, even though she's been at the school for years. Now we'll find out later that there's a reason for that. And so that's what makes me think that at least as far as Jean Grey goes, the writers and directors of this were like, Yeah, we have to start her at the very, very beginning of her journey. Like she has to be like the housewife girl who is cute and all the men are in love with her and she hasn't really developed her power or personality really yet. Our next actor won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress at the age of 11 and has been criminally underused in such films as The Irishman and this one. I'm of course talking about Vampire Bill's wife in real life, Anna Paquin. Again, I just don't, I I like Anna Paquin and I know that she can play this character well, but for all the reasons I mentioned before, this is just not rogue. and, And I really feel like Anna Paquin was done the dirtiest of most of the actors in this franchise because they really wrote themselves into a hole here. She's like the girl that has to be protected by Logan. And that's sort of the basis of their relationship is that he takes on this more paternal role towards her. And I, it just has nowhere to go, especially because this isn't a really good characterization of the character. She's just kind of a sad sack. And unfortunately, Anna Paquin deserved better. And finally, we have Rebecca Romaine, who has done some really great work in some really great places. I'm thinking about her arc on Ugly Betty. That was a show that happened. That was a good time. Barely recognizable underneath all of these prosthetics. She is not the only person to be completely not thrilled with this process, but she was the first. Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier that she said it felt like she was working on a completely different movie. She does look really cool, though. Like, I mean, it's sad that they don't get to use her more because of the amount of effort it took to get her to look like this. And so it ends up being more about the image of Mystique, which I guess is, I guess that's a really good way to describe how I feel about this film. This film is really concerned with looking like the comics and less about actually having the characters act like they do in the comics. Mystique is so wily in the comics. And even though she will work with other people like Magneto, she has her own agenda. And I I really didn't feel like this movie did that justice, but she looks real good. And also, I think you've already mentioned these as well, but do you have anything extra you'd like to say about Tyler Mayne as Sabretooth or Ray Park as Toad? They look like they do in the comics, and we never saw them again. And finally, I think there are two absolutely pitch-perfect pieces of casting. The first is Sean Ashmore as Bobby Drake, who we'll see more of later, I believe, and also as the hot dog vendor, Stan Lee. R.I.P. Stan Lee! I am so happy. I had forgotten that his cameos began as early as this in the Marvel-related films, so that was really cool. Sean Ashmore, again, not given a lot to do. He's sort of introduced as Rogue's love interest, which is frankly really bizarre. Ironic. And ironic, considering some things that happen. We're going to see more of him in the next movie. But yeah, he works more as a plot point here. But I do like Sean Ashmore as this character. I think he's fine. Again, that's how I feel. Like All of these actors are really good actors, and they're just sort of fine in this movie. It was a fine movie. So, if you were a listener to the Nine Days of Fast and Furious last year, you'll know that at this point last year, it was time for the Fast Facts and the Furious Stats, which makes no sense if you're talking about X-Men movies. So instead, tonight, we'll be talking Astonishing Facts. All right, Astonishing Fact number one, and Tessa, I know you had a lot to say about this. This film kind of went on a journey to get made for, like, a long time. For instance, people who attempted to adapt this movie. Ed Solomon, one of the people who brought to you Bill and Ted and, you know, Keanu Reeves. Michael Chabon, who 
wrote a little book called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. The guy who created Buffy took a crack at it. And Christopher McQuarrie, who's directed the last three Mission Impossible movies. Man, I hate to say any of those choices would have been better because they wouldn't have been, but Christopher McQuarrie would have been cool. I mean, they've been trying to make this film since 1984. Like, that is literally how long. And it wasn't even Fox that had the rights to it originally. It was Orion. Yeah, they tried to have Catherine Bigelow direct this film with James Cameron, its producer. They. Yeah, and then when that failed, they were going to scrap it. But then Ari Avid had such a huge success with the animated X-Men in the 90s that Fox was like, hmm, maybe we can cash in on that. And then they had this entire circus of writers that you mentioned come in and try to write different sequences. In fact, the authorship of this movie, like who wrote the actual script, is such a highly contested thing that, I mean, Ed Solomon still claims that there are large portions of this script that he wrote, even though David Hayter is the only person who is credited. A lot of people are responsible for the script, which is weird. Like you said, it feels underwritten, even though a lot of people are responsible for this script. And so it's it's just this huge journey of like, how did this movie even get made? Like, the more you read the history of it, you're like, how does this movie exist in its current form at all? Now, of course, once again, because time travel, we just finished recording the James Bond miniseries. And this was also a problem uh, with that franchise, especially with one of the Pierce Brosnan movies. It's like we just recorded it and I can't remember. So, Astonishing fact number two, and Tessa, I know you also want to chime in on this. So Singer really wanted Nightcrawler and Beast, but they were ultimately deleted from the film because who has that kind of money for a comic book movie? He also really wanted the Danger Room, which is a big part of the X-Men comic books. It is... I am looking forward to watching X2 because I do remember there being a really big jump in budget and quality between X1 and X2. And I think maybe that's the thing that we can say about the first X-Men movie, X-Men 2000. We can say that it proved that the concept could work. It was very popular. And that's what got us the money for the franchise. And because even a broken clock is right twice a day, Brian Singer did a good thing. He rearranged the entire shooting schedule for this film so that Ian McKellen could get to New Zealand in time for another film franchise. See what I did there? Yeah, like we, yeah, yeah. We, we talked about it earlier and yeah, yeah, yeah okay. And finally, is it? Yeah. Okay. All right. So can you tell I'm also a huge fan of Lord of the Rings? I also know everything about that, not Tessa. Your final astonishing fact for this episode is that Hugh Jackman is six feet, two inches tall. I love that in this movie, they're still committed to the fiction that Logan is short. Like, in future movies, they just totally give up, and Hugh Jackman's height is just six foot two. Like, they try not to, like, they they just forget, forget it, we're not even going to try. But in this movie, they are still, like, trying to make him look short, so they have him, like, standing on steps below everybody else. It's just funny. And of course, I mentioned Christopher McQuarrie earlier. Much like his leading man in several of his movies, James Marsden had to wear lifts in this first movie to appear slightly taller. And now it's time for Uncanny Stats. The budget for this film was a very modest $75 million, as Tessa points out, X2 had a much higher budget based on this film's success. Opening weekend domestic, it brought in $54.5 million. Total box office, $296 million. So this is a very large success for the time. The top five movies at the box office the weekend of its release in July. X-Men was number one, followed by Scary Movie. Number three, The Perfect Storm. That's actually pretty funny. (laughs) Number four, The Patriot. Wait, that's also funny. Number five, The... Hey, that actually works out. If this movie was a scary movie, we'd just have a clean sweep here. Okay, 
So last year when we did Fast and Furious, we did, we counted Coronas, we counted mentions of family. It was a fun bit. And I realized when we were making the notes for this app, we have no such bit. And then Tessa said, oh, I want to mention something. And I said, oh, great. That means that we have an all new, all different segment. This segment is called Tessa Recommends, in which she will recommend one piece of further reading, viewing, etc. from the wide world of X-Men canon. Today's recommendation. My recommendation is that you watch the 90s animated series of X-Men by Avi Arad. It has a much better dynamic, and as a TV series, it gets to invest in, like, the different missions that they go on, as well as overarching storylines. The characters are a lot closer to what they are in the comics. Rogue actually has a personality and a flirtation with Gambit, and they get to, like, play around a little bit more and do things with the animation that the first movie really didn't have the budget for. So if you're looking for something that's perhaps a little bit more fun, a little bit more streamlined, go with the very, very popular 90s X-Men, the animated series. All right. Like Wolverine, it's time for us to leave and go somewhere else. But also like Wolverine, we'll be back next time. So join us tomorrow for the next installment of the 13 Days of X-Men, when we'll be talking X2 with Megan Spell. Watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your miraculous mutant thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MonkeyBacklog. Email us at MonkeyOffMyBacklog at gmail.com. And visit our website, MonkeyOffMyBacklog.com. Dot com. You can find Tessa on Twitter at SuelaTessa, and you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morse 9. Our theme song is Jingle Bells by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy holidays, and get that monkey off your back, bub.